Okay, test on the audio. This is for Danny. Georgie, go ahead. Test of the audio for Georgie. This is Georgie. Uh, this is audio again for Danny. Who is louder? Who is quieter? Please let us know in the chat. Uh, once again, this is Danny's audio. Georgie, go ahead. This is Georgie's audio. Hello, everybody. We are live on YouTube. Georgie, how are you, sir? Still, we're live and alive still, right? <laughs> well, welcome to the Generative Energy Apocalypse stream. And so very happy for Georgie to be my guest. I'm in like the most uncomfortable chair imaginable, so I'll be probably squirming around this whole time. But Georgie, give us a sense of what life is like at the moment. Uh, I mean, I can only speak for DC, but, uh, you know, uh, the city is under, um, what is it, like emergency law or something it's not martial law but it's still an emergency a state of emergency and all the schools are and daycares and public facilities are closed um like gyms bars restaurants uh libraries uh pretty much any other facility you can think of that the public would use are all is also closed so um for people like me you're basically stuck at home uh, i mean it's not a mandatory quarantine but uh you know um if there, there's visibly less people uh, fewer people on the streets and uh, when you're walking around, especially if you, they see you with children, 
um, police would approach you and I don't want to say they'll harass you, but they'll say like, where are you going? You know, why, you know, are you aware of the, the virus going around and, you know, you're not wearing masks, the children are not wearing masks, you know, why aren't you home? So, uh, you know, situation like that. So basically for most people, I'm guessing they're, they're stuck at home and, um, you know, they're working from home. And the ones that have children, they're working from home and their children are at home 24-7, mostly, uh, you know, uh, because also the buildings, uh, you know, if you live in a house, there's one situation. But if you live, most people in the city live in these apartment buildings and uh, the apartment buildings have closed, closed off all the amenities. So there are no, there are no like uh, playrooms for kids because, I mean, there are, but they're closed. Gyms are closed. Common rooms are closed. So you basically can only pick up your mail. <laughs> And then you have to go to your apartment and that's pretty much it. So, so it's basically, you know, whoever has family and children, you're stuck at home, your children at home and you have to work. And, you know, this goes on seven days a week. So it's, it's not fun. I, I, I just don't see how this can go on for, you know, another two, three weeks, maybe, maybe two weeks tops. But after that, you're going to start seeing some, uh, some, uh, you know, first subdued social unrest. And then it's probably going to spill over, start spilling over on the streets. So, I live in an apartment building. I have friends who live in other apartment buildings. I mean, if people can't go, cannot go out or, you know, are scared to the point that they don't want to go out uh, and they're stuck in their in their apartments, you know, most of the time, uh, you know, um, things start, you know, <laughs> taking a turn for the bad. People drink, do drugs, fight, uh, initially verbally, then physically. Um, I mean, in our apartment building, I've, I've never seen the police roam the hallways, uh, you know, so often, uh, every every day, you know, get out of the apartment. We live on the fourth floor. I, I see I see cops every day, uh, and they're usually being called for nose violations. And a few times, they actually took people out in handcuffs. I've never seen that happen before. Um, and you can hear. I mean, basically, like the, our apartment is facing the inner courtyard, and you can hear people fighting all the time. This had not happened before. Uh, and of course, there's also the financial situation. You know, some people are getting laid off. Other people, you know, are being told they're getting their pay reduced. Um, so I don't think this is, this, I mean, clearly not a good situation, but I think the, the signs that I'm seeing are that the people are more worried about the financial ramification and the fact that their, you know, uh, freedom of movement is being, um, is, is, is impeded, is hindered, and they're not worried so much about the virus. Even though when, once you start going out into the stores and interacting with other people, then you do run into some of the more fanatical ones uh, that are you know basically like they're wearing their, their 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 highly scientific masks that you probably you know nasa would be envious and probably would want a, a mask or two for their team going to the moon um and they're wearing gloves and whatnot you know keep in mind most of the store staff is not wearing neither masks nor gloves um i mean maybe they should but i'm saying that they're not and at least they're not giving off the vibe of, you know, being panicked or being afraid, which is probably a good thing. But the people, the clients there are, um, and they're actually, you know, lashing out at others, including the staff and also the clients, you know, that we are not taking this as seriously as this should be. So, um, yeah. So basically we have now this, this cohort of people splitting into two groups, the fanatics and uh, I don't want to go to fanatics, but the, one, the, the doomers, you know, for lack of a better word, and then the people who just want to go on with their lives. Um, and uh, it's the doomers that are kind of like attacking the others and saying, like, you're not taking this seriously. But more often than not, if you talk to the doomers, the ones who want to be talked to, you, you'll find out there's something else going on that's causing this this uh, this uh, aggressiveness. It's usually, like like I said, problems with uh, problems at home, problems at work. It's not really the virus. 
Well, I was, it's funny to compare and contrast like the divisive, divisiveness of politics versus the idea that somebody has like a black plague disease that you could possibly get and then give spread to your loved ones. And so if you really think about it, like anybody who's in the uh, conspiracy, so-called conspiracy, I think it's reality more so uh, minded. It's like really the perfect thing to cause total like social chaos, I think. And I'm not saying it's Planned or whatever, it doesn't even matter, or I mean, or it does matter, but it, it it's just like the chaos that it creates between individuals is insane. I was also reflecting, like before we talked to Ray, that was uh, like coronavirus was happening, but it, not even close to the extent that it is now, you know. And I and I remember thinking before our show with Ray, like I didn't even want to bring it up because I thought thought it was such like non a non story. <laughs> but a lot of the things you asked him were totally relevant to like what happened a few days later. And so, man, yeah, okay. So I'll qu- tell a quick story. Like I was in Bangkok, and my girlfriend she went back to her, like her hometown. It's called um, anybody's Thai in the audience. I apologize, but it's called like Pichit. And she left and she's like Danny you should really leave Bangkok and I was like no you know I have an Airbnb I don't want to like double pay for another room somewhere and it's like comfortable here because there's a grocery store like right so close that I could walk there and that's like a major thing for me to do all the time is to go to the grocery store and so I was like no I'll I'll meet you after the 31st and I'm just going to stay here and kind of ride it out and she text, uh, texted me like uh, probably just a few days ago and she was like uh, or on the 25th no maybe the 24th and she was like hey bangkok is closing down on the 26th you should leave <laughs> you should like move your train uh ticket to tomorrow and but i'm like looking around me and i'm in an airbnb i've been living in for like two months and so you can just imagine like i'm like totally moved in you know and i'm like oh my god i have to leave on a train of i'm in a place called um it pizza now luck or, or somewhere now it's like right above peach it and so it's kind of funny, like getting all my things together and like es- escaping Bangkok. And then when I got here, the next day, Bangkok closed down and you couldn't travel uh, out of there. So I was actually pretty thankful for her giving me the heads up. But man, yeah, this is uh, I'd be interested in people's stories, but this is definitely unprecedented. You know, like well, I somebody I really respect. Her name was is Whitney Webb. And she was talking about how we lost a bunch of liberties after 9-11 and you can just imagine what this is due. If this is kind of like a power grab for uh, eviscerating our rights, it, it could certainly makes sense that things get harder and not easier. Yeah, I just, I mean, I just don't see how this could result in more freedoms. Even we don't lose anymore. Uh, and and if nothing else, the population now is is you know is just as on board with losing those freedoms and being okay with it as they were after nine eleven. Um, you know, I mean, if you look at the news, everybody's saying like. Notice how the word war and that we are at war is present in virtually every every major news broadcast that is that is, is being like released out there. We're at war. Once again, we're at war. But this time is this with this invisible enemy. They're not it's not Muslim, it's not Christian, you know, it doesn't live in caves in Afghanistan, and it's even it's even worse. It's even harder to catch and kill. But it's gonna require that all of us, you know, we we act together and we don't ask too many questions because you, know, you gotta have, you gotta trust the powers that be. They're they're really have your you know uh, your best interest at, at heart. So, Georgia, it's kind of sad, but, but uh, we'll we'll see how it plays out. I'm so sorry to do this to you. Is it uh, at all possible for you to sw- turn your mic 180 degrees? That's what we're getting in the chat here. But I know there's it's plugged in. So is that impossible to do? 
Like just literally turning it around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this? Yeah. And I now just don't see how what, what this changes. I mean, I, I hear the exact same voice as before. Whereas, uh, people were mentioning that that that's how it looked when you sounded really, really good. Okay, guys, I don't. I, I the, there's like a technical difference for how we're we're setting this up versus maybe the last time that Georgie's audio sounded really good. So that might yeah, be also it. Last time we were on Skype. Yeah, I, I think, think I think it Zoom. might be Skype versus Zoom. To be honest with you, so yeah. I'm going to spend too much time on it. Um, okay, the whole uh, point. Of- the Skype sound has a lot more bass than mm-hmm. Zoom. Actually, because when I'm doing the interviews with Janelle, she also uses Zoom and Kitty. Mm-hmm. I sound. I mean, right now the the sound is a lot flatter, like with less bass, mm-hmm. and and it sounds the same way when I'm doing the interviews with them. So yeah. I don't think it's the microphone. I think it's the, something we'll, about the software connection. We'll just go with it. Yeah, it might be compressing your voice. Okay, so the whole point of this was to get through the super chat questions. You know, I seriously tried to warn people that we were not going to answer the super chats, and I, I got a lot of flack for that. But guys, it would. Um, uh, now they're saying it's it sounds worse than before. <laughs> Good lord, I, I I don't know what to do, guys. Sorry. Um, but anyways, uh, the thing. Let me just explain myself real quickly. I didn't want to get into the super chat questions when I had Ray on because one, I didn't, I had zero idea of what to expect when he was on there, and my my whole purpose for having Ray on is to really explore, hopefully, like semi new territory. And so, if it goes into nutrition or it goes into the carrot salad, that's fine. But I really wanted it to go new places, and I was really pleased with how that episode turned out. And so, um, so yeah, that if if we were answering every single. Uh, super chat on, on that it would have just been it would have taken hours you know and then it would have just been in my it would have been the kind of the same old same old and i, d- I wanted to take it to a new place uh if that was possible um, i liked it a lot i mean i thought we asked questions and, and discussed topics yeah, that yeah i really we, just want to fa- facilitate it, uh you talking to ray <laughs> and so <laughs> I, yeah so i thought that would bring it to a new place and so um yeah and he'll be back on the show um is it next month like the 24th or something i'll get the schedule out if he agrees right i mean you never know yeah no i think you know i think he he did confirm with us so i think we're all good and he also said uh you guys didn't hear it but he said it was fun talking to you guys and he never says that (laughs) oh wow i'm 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 honored i'm floored (laughs) Okay. Um, well, while we're talking about Corona, is there anything, maybe we could do an article on your website, hate.me, and then we could go do a few super chats and then go back to an article? Uh, yeah. I mean, if you want to keep it within the Corona topic, uh, there are two of them. Um, you know what? I let's, guess the latest let, one is the, let's, the, the COVID. Okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. COVID-19 yeah, SARS. Yeah. Maybe simply due to serum, the elevated serum PUFA and its peroxidation. And, you know, these two articles were sent to a reader of mine. Um, uh, he reads the blog and he reads the forum as well. So I've been having like back and forth with this guy for like at least four years. You know, initially he was highly doubtful of the whole PUFA connection, right? But, in, you know, after a while he started sending me these things that, that sort of like corroborate, um, you know, many of, the, many of the discussions we're having here. And, and often like really like, I mean, uh, I, I guess – Ray has kind of touched upon this. He, he, he said that the people who are developing these, these uh, respiratory failures, they were, they're already having like high inflammation in the lungs. And of course, the inflammation is at least partially driven by PUFA. But even Ray, I don't think he ever said directly that, hey, it's PUFA that's actually causing this disease. 
and that's really what it what it what it is. It's just a symptom of high levels of peroxidation in the lungs and also the inflammatory mediators that are being derived from PUFA. And that's exactly what these two studies show. Um, and they also show that giving people drugs and they gave in one of the studies, they gave people something called lysophiline. And it's basically, uh, it's like a more li uh, li uh, lipophilic version of caffeine. So you can, you can try that at home. I guess you can try taking caffeine instead of the lysophiline. Um, and it's, it's a drug that lowers the levels of polyunsaturated levels in the blood. And that was enough to cure the majority of the people who were admitted in the hospital. People either admitted with the hospital with, with ARDS, they call it the acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is just another name for SARS, right? Um, and, or they had patients that were in the hospital and they developed sepsis and ARDS and or ARDS as a result of the, the procedure that they had in the hospital and they stayed in the hospital for a few days. Long story short, taking the two studies together demonstrate that it's basically the peroxidation of PUFA and one, they even mentioned one specific metabolite that's particularly bad. It's called 4-hydroxy-2-noninal. Uh, so it's an aldehyde and it's similar to the malon, the notorious malon dialdehyde we've discussed so many times on your podcasts, which is like the biomarker of, uh, of, uh, of you know, elevated PUFA levels either in the diet or in the blood because of excessive lipolysis. So these two studies combined demonstrated that uh, ARDS slash SARS is nothing more than inflammation triggered by elevated PUFA in the blood and consequently the metabolism into the prostaglandins, leukotrienes, and thromboxanes through the arachidonic acid pathway combined with the peroxidation and the, these aldehydes and other toxic byproducts of the peroxidation process. So giving people things that either lower the levels, I mean, kind of like removes PUFA from the bloodstream to protect the lungs or like prevents its peroxidation. And I mentioned vitamin E, you know, aspirin, vitamin C, um, uh, other antioxidants, either one of these, or even lowering lipolysis with niacinamide. That's another way to just get, get PUFA out of the bloodstream. Um, was, you know, it's probably going to be highly therapeutic. Um, and, uh, you know, yes, the virus is there, but the question now is, okay, so, so if PUFA is the actual cause of SARS, how does the virus, what's the virus live? Well, as I posted a few articles, over, I mean, one of them was just a month ago, and the, the two others were about a year ago, the presence of the virus in the bloodstream or cellular debris triggers the HPA, the, the, the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. That's it's just a stress signal, right? And whenever you have that, the cortisol and adrenaline will rise and lipolysis will be increased. So it's really, it's, it's a stress response that's causing this disease, but not the virus itself. Because, and actually they noticed this uh, with the, uh, in, in some of the recent studies done with coronavirus, because they noticed that some patients that had almost an un undetectable viral load because they were given these antiviral drugs, they were still developing SARS and they, they didn't know why. And now these studies kind of give a hint, maybe because these people, like the stress response was already underway, the lipolysis was getting to an excessive level and, you know, too much unsaturated fat in the blood and these people started go going into respiratory failure, but it wasn't the virus that was, uh, I mean, it wasn't, it was, they, technically they weren't even sick but with the virus. Their viral counts were really low to the point where they would be considered either either post-viral, right? Or like they, not, not an actual active viral infection. Um, and yet they still develop SARS. So it's really, so it's the virus is just a mediator. I mean, it's, it's just a particle out there that's, that the body is reacting to. And depending on the energetic reserves, 
your proof of stores, right? Um, those are the things that determine that whether you're going to be developing SARS or not. It's not the virus it, by itself that's really giving you the disease. It's how you react to it. That's that's the determinant uh, factor. Sweet, good stuff. Okay. Um, okay, so let's jump into. So these are the some of the super chats. Um, and guys, sincerely appreciate it. The super chats, you know, I, I sent these straight to Ray. The, the reason I didn't want to turn the super chats off is I knew that people would want to donate to Ray. And so, um, so I'll just read, we'll, we'll go through these. A lot of these don't have questions, but, uh, Dave McGee, thanks Ray. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, Marshall, uh, once, uh, maybe I'll just not read the names. Uh, thank you. DBO, uh, Oscar TC, TC, very generous, $300. Send that straight to Ray. Thank you very much for being so generous and kind. And also I'll screenshot these and forward them. So maybe I'll just read the ones with questions to, um, Do you have any thoughts on du deuterium? Well, like, uh, I mean, the, the deuterium water or, or why? I mean, is it being used as a, as a treatment? Uh, this biological water produced by mitochondria may explain consciousness, deuterium, depleted sugars, safer. Where have you seen uh, that? Uh, I mean, what... Please look into deuterium's effects on dehydrogenase enzymes and such. This is biological water. Is that, is that a question? Yeah. So what what is the actual question? What are what are the what are deuterium would actually help or will be will be beneficial for health? I think this person is in the chat. Uh, intelligent evolution. Can you clarify a little bit, and we'll we'll get to it. But we're gonna skip that for now, and I'll keep my eye on the chat. Uh, Anna Tanksa, uh, endometriosis often causes multiple adhesions in the pelvic area. Is it possible to get rid of these often painful adhesions without surgery? Uh, yes, and I know Ray is going to recommend progesterone, but there, there have been some promising results with serotonin antagonists, specifically uh, uh, serotonin antagonists that block the um, 5-HT2B, so basically the serotonin receptor 2B. That is the receptor responsible for fibrosis and many of the, like the, scar, the formation of scarry tissue as well. Um, and I've, as I mentioned on several other podcasts, Pfizer is running clinical trials with a drug called Turgorite. It's a blockade, it's a blocker of serotonin receptor 2B. Um, and they've shown that it can reverse, it can prevent, but also can cure heart failures, which is a type of heart fibrosis and pulmonary fibrosis as well. And there are some older studies, not with Tergoride, but other serotonin antagonists, which demonstrate that they can um, basically, uh, you know, reduce the fibrotic side effects uh, associated with, with, with endometriosis. Sweet. Thank you for that. Um, another one from Intelligent Evolution. They say, how or why do opiates gradually increase prolactin while lowering gonadal function? And how, uh, because, yeah, how, and how are dopamine and or GABA the real neurotransmitters of optimal health and euphoria? So the opioids, they act through the, uh, through the opioid receptor and anything that acts as an agonist of the opioid receptor immediately starts releasing histamine and prolactin. Uh, exactly what the mechanism behind this 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 whole um, cascade is, I'm I'm not completely sure. But anytime you take in a potent agonist of the mu opio mu opioid receptors, that would be the 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 end result. Um, and this has been known for a very long time. So anytime you raise prolactin, prolactin has a, a suppressive effect on the pituitary, as uh, not a pituitary, but on the gonadal function, similar to the way estrogen does. Um, histamine does as well. I mean, it's an inflammatory mediator. So um, 
GABA and dopamine, first of all, dopamine is going to lower prolactin and release this inhibitory effect on the gonad, on, on, on the gonads, and GABA tends to increase the degradation of serotonin and also by, by you know, by lowering serotonin or at least increasing its turnover, that also tends to have a uh, re reducing, reduction effect on prolactin as well. So it's really the prolactin effect, the prolactogenic effect of the opioids that is behind their anti-gonadal uh, effects or, or, or hypogonadal effects, so to speak. Um, but the histamine doesn't help either. Um, and actually, their histamine receptors that are expressed in the, in the testicles uh, of males and it's known that that uh, you know administering histamine or histamine um, H1 agonist, the agonist of the H1 receptor, um, are actually you know they're capable of causing hypogonadism. And conversely, by blocking these receptors, if there is a histamine uh, overload, you can actually restore gonadal function to normal. Um, in general, anything that it, anything that acts as an inflammatory mediator will probably either directly or through a, through a cascade several steps down the way. It's going to inhibit gonadal function simply because gonadal function is considered by the body to be dispensable, um, and it's one of the first things to uh, to basically decline um, because it's energetically very expensive, similar to higher cognitive function. So your higher cognitive function, your creativity, and your gonadal function are the first ones to be uh, thrown to the side if there is an issue with health, if you have a trauma, or if there is a chronic inflammation, or you're taking opioids and uh, basically you're throwing yourself into a hyperprolactinemic slash histaminergic state. We can, uh, we'll go through a few of these and go on to something else and then we'll come back to them so I don't know where, where everybody out. <laughs> Again, this episode really is to catch up on these questions. Um, so we probably get this a lot, but uh, the coronavirus, how to protect older parents. Do you, do you have any, like I know Ray said vitamin D, um, uh, do you have any kind of bare uh, if they're actually if they're amenable if they're amenable to it um, I think something like a combination of progesterone and DHEA in a ratio of at least three to one would actually be great because um, you know it's um, as one recent actually several recent studies demonstrated um, inhibiting aromatase or in, in other words block either lowering the synthesis of estrogen or blocking its effects somehow. Um, you know, completely restores the size of the thymus gland. Um, and thymus gland happens to completely atrophy after about the age of 50 in most people. And that's actually one of the main reasons why all of these diseases start to spring up and affect elderly people a lot more than they do others. So anything that you can do to lower estrogen or block its effects is probably going to be highly beneficial. So things like vitamin E, aspirin, progesterone, DHEA. Um, I think vitamin E may be probably one of the first and most acceptable steps, not only because vitamin E is over the counter, but because vitamin E has specifically been tested for, for uh, improving immune function in the, in the elderly. And it was shown that um, a daily dosage of 400 international units IUs dramatically decreased the incidence of pneumonia in nursing homes. And that pneumonia in nursing homes happens to be the number one cause of death among elderly people. They actually die of pneumonia either because they're bedridden or they, you know, they basically uh, caught a cold or a bacterial infection, and because their immune system is suppressed, they, it, it, it grows into a pneumonia and they die from it. So vitamin E was shown to reduce the rate of pneumonia by 72% just by taking 400 international units. So I think it's, its effects on um, you know, suppressing estrogen, or at least estrogen's effects, um, that's 
probably that probably has to do a lot with its benefits uh, with the benefits that was seen in um, in uh, improving the immune function of the elderly so vitamin e or, and or aspirin that will be the first things they'll try and if they are amenable to a steroid therapy so to speak progesterone and dha will be the other things they'll try um if also other other things that can be done that are over the counter but there there happen to be drugs um the antihistamine benadryl probably could help. Uh, it's been shown that, first of all, that antihistamine also has anti-serotonin effects. And um, it has been shown in a number of different studies to be able to block the replication and the infection, um, uh, even with some you know, lethal viruses like Ebola, rabies, and even HIV. Now, whether you agree that HIV is a lethal virus, that's a separate story, but uh, Benadryl was successfully used in at least three separate studies. And structurally, Benadryl, is very similar to the anti-serotonin drug sinanserin, which Ray mentioned uh, on a few recent interviews. And sinanserin is known to be able to stop the development of, of COVID-19 and, and potentially cure it. So it can both prevent and cure it. Unfortunately, it's not available directly, but diphenhydramine, which is the chemical name of Benadryl, is structurally very closely, is, is a very stru close structural analog and potentially has similar effects. And do you have any thoughts on the the how it's being um, tested? Like I, I did, somebody who is that scientist that Ray mentioned, uh, the like the German guy, and he was basically saying that how they're testing things is like completely unreliable. Uh, you mean like for the virus? Yeah. Um, I don't think that the test is very accurate. I mean, the current test that they have that's most widely available, I think, has like a unacceptable high level of false positive. Uh, rates it's like 40 to 60 percent he said something like you have to treat those tests like they're they're products from the, the pharma industry but they never tested them they just ran with the the test but i, I only say that it because it's like people are are kind of like putting a cart i mean they can do whatever they want but it's like i if there's no way to even test for this virus like it's really the like worrying how not to get it seems Trish. Yeah, I mean the the test, uh, and I don't think the the powers that be are hiding. Yeah, Wolfgang Wolfgang Wolgard, I think, is the name. Thank you, John. The, te the test that I saw the the latest one on the news. Somebody sent me an article showing that there are uh, forty to sixty percent false positive rates. So, and uh, you can also see that in some of the uh, news coming out of China now. They're saying that people who had the virus and then were tested as they were leaving the hospital and they tested negative, and then within twenty four hours were given another test. And then they started, they tested positive and they brought them back to the hospital. They gave them the same test and now they're testing negative. So now they're like, what's going on? Either this virus is, is so rapidly cycling that we, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. We've never seen any, anything like that before or our tests are complete bunk. So um, most people are leaning towards the, the latter version because uh, it's just the, all these tests were pushed through approval so quickly that uh, there wasn't really any double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial. And now a lot of pharma companies are getting rich, but the tests themselves are probably uh, not complete junk, but you know, definitely not something that I would, that I would entrust my life and health to. Yeah, or putting like an RFID chip on your body that you do not have. Um, okay, I just put up on the screen the Ray Pete archive, with this, which is John Burkhausen, and he did he ha does some of my favorite interviews with Ray. Uh, and so he just did two excellent ones. Uh, and Patrick Timpone did another good one with him as well. Did you have a chance to listen to these, Georgie? 
Uh, no. I mean, are, are, are these the recent ones about the coronavirus? Yeah, he did a part one and part two, and I just thought they were really great. John is like, what? No, I haven't listened to him, but uh, I mean, we kind of touched upon this. Um, I don't know if you had a, if you interviewed Ray, I mean, I, I saw like a transcription of it, and he said he has a, a lot of sympathy for the current administration, the federal government, which he normally doesn't, because he's saying that, you know, they're, they're getting pushed to uh, implement a lot of these crazy responses that he thinks are completely unwarranted, you know, and it's just the impact of them, even health-wise, forget about the economic impact, but health-wise, it's more likely to do harm than good, clustering all these people in the hospitals, you know, cross-infecting each other, um, not really knowing the true infection rate, and then broadcasting all these news about this ridiculously high mortality rate. And I just sent you an article today that uh, Dr. Fauci, who is like the now the face of the government's response to the coronavirus, is saying, yeah, it kind of starts to look like this is, you know, just like another severe influenza epidemic with a, with a confirmed fatality rate of about 0.1%. That is the fatality rate of the regular influenza. And so basically, I don't even know why he put the qualifiers severe in front of it. We're looking at, at least so far, through his own words, we're looking at another essentially influenza. Maybe striking somehow, you know, uh, people are more vulnerable to it if you have if they have pre-existing conditions. But guess what? That's probably true of the regular flu virus too. We we don't hear about overwhelmed hospitals in the Midwest or in small towns in the United States because it wouldn't be considered news. But I work, I mean, I have friends that are doctors and they spent their residency periods in such hospitals. And they said that, you know, when it's flu season, hospitals often would get overwhelmed. The ER and the, and the pulmonology division will get overwhelmed because they'll have an influx of elderly slash sick people, sometimes drug addicts, sometimes homeless people like on, you know, that are drunk or otherwise immunocompromised and they'll get flooded with these people and the hospital will get overwhelmed, but you don't, it, it won't make the national news. It maybe will make the local ones. But even the local ones, would, you know, they've seen this before, so it's not news for them. Good stuff. Um, okay, back to, back to some of these questions. Uh, Christina, for a very generous $99.99. Thank you, Christina. Um, Matthew Riley says, how many forum, uh, many forum members experience possible low estrogen symptoms of cracking joints, random pains, fatigue, etc., when taking fat solubles? Thoughts? Uh, this is actually something I used to hear on bodybuilding forums and, and uh but, but i've ahead. never heard people experience it from fat solubles i've heard people experience this on high dose aromatase inhibitors uh, mostly the zoles the anastrozoles the letrozoles um i mean and uh, but i i think most of these symptoms are due to the fact that these aromatase inhibitors suppress a lot more than estrogen as it some several studies have shown they also suppress pregnenolone and progesterone synthesis, even though they they elevate uh, testosterone levels. So um, I would like to see studies on you know combining progesterone and or pregnenolone administration with an aromatase inhibitor and see the same symptoms appear. Um, I have experienced them myself when I use aromatase inhibitors on their own, but when I add a little bit of pregnenolone, these symptoms disappear. I have never seen reports uh, or received reports myself that people experience them on fat solubles. I mean. If you, unless you're taking something extreme, let's say like several grams of vitamin E daily, I don't think you'll be getting to the point of even, um, you know, matching the effects of an aromatase inhibitor of a pharmaceutical aromatase inhibitor. So I don't know 
what these reports will be based on. Maybe these people are taking something else they're, they're not sharing with us. Yeah, or maybe it's just interfering with their intestine and causing weird symptoms. Like I, that ser- can cause it too. Yeah. yeah, seriously doubt it's low estrogen. Um, Ruth uh, Conzo says, in- increasing my progesterone using uh, Progesty changed my life. I am ever so grateful for you, Dr. Pete, Danny, and Georgie. Thank you, Ruth. Um, Kirk, for someone who has sig- significant diabetes symptoms, skinny overall, but Big gut, black toes, scabs on legs. What could someone do to resolve this? Thank you. Skinny but big gut. I mean, that actually sounds like a symptom of high cortisol to me. Uh, if you look at the symptoms of Cushing syndrome, um, that that would be the definition of it. So I would, um, you know, I would do some tests and see if cortisol is elevated. And if it is, um, you know, the regular thyroid recommendation, I think it applies because uh, unless there is a Cushing disease, which is caused by a, um, you know, tumor in the pituitary gland, uh, most of the other cases of elevated cortisol leading to Cushing-like symptoms are usually due to a, to a suppressed thyroid function. Um, and, uh, and, and this leads to dec- decreased clearance of cortisol. So it's not that it's overproduction of cortisol, but it's decreased clearance, so it builds up. Um, you know, fatty liver disease can also cause it because, the, you know, the liver is a major um, site of deactivating cortisol. So I would do some, you know, tests for liver enzymes and liver function and see how, you know, what those look like. But if cortisol is elevated, I would consider maybe, you know, progesterone or uh, or something like emodin from cascara because their emodin inhibits the synthesis of cortisol. Progesterone blocks the effects of cortisol at the receptor side and also increases the, the, the deactivation of cortisol. And aspirin, actually salicylic acid is being confirmed to be a, to be a, 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 an inhibitor of cortisol synthesis similar to emodin. Good stuff. Okay, let me take a little mini break here. Guys, give this episode a like if you enjoyed it. Uh, this channel is severely bottlenecked, uh, and I am extremely sure of that. Like, um, Especially the Ray episode, it was so obvious that it was like fire uh, with, uh, with, with everything, and then it just stopped at a certain point. And so... I just, uh, again, I, uh, I'm sure it's Google's algorithm. So if you like this stuff, you got to share it because this channel, I think, I think I, so when I was in Mexico in November, I did like an estimation thing of how many subscribers I would have, I think in January. And it was like easily 15,000 given the rate that it was going. And then I have have at the moment 11,000 and like 20. Uh, and so I, I know those estimators aren't accurate, but I'll go, even when I wasn't posting videos on YouTube, I gained like 5,000 subs- uh, subscribers in like six months or something. And so again, I don't think YouTube needs to help this channel or whatever, but it's not, it, it's, it's basically like eviscerating the, um, the, the potential for somebody to find it, I think. So, so again, give it a like, uh, leave a comment, uh, even if it's a bad comment. I think that helps uh, just just the the engagement of these episodes because there is there is no bad publicity. <laughs> yeah, because I think we have a core audience who I'm really appreciative of, but I, I don't think I think the potential for growth is very limited. Um, okay, well, where was I going with that? Um, okay, so I was go. Uh, let me go, Georgie. Follow Georgie on. Twitter, twitter.com slash heydit, um, idealabsdc.com. I know money is probably tight. Uh, I, I, I do coaching as well, but but again, I know 
Cash is tight for a lot of people. Where is my... Oh, I'm so unprepared right now. Here's my flyer for my coaching. If you're interested, I do email and Skype coaching. Again, Georgie's Boutique Supplement Products, idea, uh, idealabsdc.com. Follow Georgie on Twitter. And the other, other, only other thing I'm kind of interested in at the moment is if you are on Telegram, I've been trying to post more stuff on there. I think the engagement is pretty high with this. And I was following some creators on here and I actually really enjoyed it. And so I decided to sign up for it. I know it's not bulletproof in terms of like censorship and stuff, but it's still... Uh, seems to be growing in popularity. And Georgie, any other news? Uh, let's see. I mean, I keep pushing with my studies. Um, basically, I'm waiting for the uh, the lab in Taiwan that did the DHT study, the first one to send me a report. And they also, they're doing a second one with a different, it's still prostate cancer, but it's a different type of cell line. So we're going to have hopefully two studies, one with a so-called androgen insensitive prostate cancer, castration resistant is the other name for it, and the other one with uh, androgen sensitive. So, so far, basically the study completed with the uh, androgen insensitive uh, cancer cell line, and we demonstrated that it is sensitive and DHT inhibited the growth. Um, and now we want to also show that it didn't promote it, it actually inhibited by about 50%. And we want to now show that DHT also doesn't promote the growth of the androgen-sensitive prostate cancer, which is the, the initial stage that most people have, have from the very beginning without before getting hit with the castration treatments and whatnot. And then there is good indication that DHT may actually cure a significant percentage of those of the animals with that cancer. And, you know, after these two studies are complete, um, you know, I'm sure the pharma industry will attack them, but, you know, to people who know us and who know Ray's work, I think the evidence will be pretty difficult to dispute. Basically, the so-called villain, the steroid that was claimed to be killing men left and right after they turned 60, um, you know, mind you, if you actually measure their levels of DHT in the blood, they're almost, they're, you know, they're much lower than what they would be in somebody who is 20-year-old. But anyways, I think the evidence will be pretty hard to dispute that DHT is anything but a killer. Uh, it's actually may, may save so many people's lives and be even more effective than testosterone, which is now actually in clinical trials for prostate cancer, ironically, because DHT, unlike testosterone, doesn't turn into estrogen. So, so the, the only way, the, the, the only sort of like escape route that the farm industry has been having so far is that when they saw the successful trials with uh, testosterone and prostate cancer, they came back and said, you know what? It's not testosterone that's working, but it's converting into estrogen, and it's the estrogen that's helping. Well, now we're giving DHT, cannot convert into estrogen. So that line of defense is gone. So unless they somehow, you know, uh, come up with a fake dossier that I'm a child predator or I don't know what else they're going to come up with, uh, I think the evidence will be, will be pretty clear. I mean, uh, and to me, it's, it's been clear for a long time, but it always helps when an independent lab confirms it. Um, and I'll, you know, after I have the studies published, I mean, I'll show everybody that it's like, even though I sponsor the studies, the lab that did them, they're actually uh, mandated under federal law to report any results um, to, to the FDA or at least to the government agency that's responsible for collecting these results. So even if I did not like the results, even if I decide not to publish them, they actually they can they report a copy of the real results of the raw results to the federal government. And if I decide to publish a fake study, let's say they actually came up you know, with the results or no, DHT actually does promote prostate cancer. And I lied and I published the opposite. 
the studies will immediately be retracted. The federal government knows, and I could go to jail for, for a falsification of scientific research. So uh, you'll be, you know, yes, I did sponsor it, but aside from that, I had no part other than designing the study and saying, like, these are the groups that I want. These are the dosages of DHT that I want. And after that, the lab took over, and um, I haven't touched the animals. I haven't administered anything. They're in Taiwan, and I'm here. So it's really, it's really like it's an independent. It's it's kind of it's. I think it's it's called um, in the industry it's called the CRO, Clinical Research Organization. They're a third-party independent company that runs the trial, so that you know you can really influence the results. And that's what we've done here. So looking forward to that. And I have a, a bunch of other studies in the in the works. Um, and one of them would be with our product Pyroset, which is a fatty acid oxidation inhibitor. I have some high hopes for that too. Let me just turn on the light. All right, take your time. Guys, thank you so much. Uh, I'm watching the chat and talking to Georgie at the same time. Looks good. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks again. So, yeah, I mean, the, uh, the scientific work is ongoing. Um, it's, if anything, it's actually I, in, intensifying, but Unfortunately, uh, the labs that I'm using, one in Bulgaria and the other one in Taiwan, are both right now under lockdown. So that's that's what's affecting the uh, publication of the results. I think I sent you one link for about Corinon, uh, the first publication uh, of the study that we did on murine leukemia. And there will be a second study with the actual autopsy results and the tumor sizes and the metastasis. I think that's what most people will be interested in seeing. That one is about to come out as well. Um, as soon as the lab reopens, uh, because right now Bulgaria is actually in a bigger shutdown than, than China. Really? You cannot go out on the street. It's actually, it is, it is equivalent to martial law. You cannot go out on the street. Um, and if you do, uh, you, it's you're only allowed to go to the pharmacy, to the doctor or to the store once every three days. And if they catch you doing this, otherwise it's, uh, basically risking five years of imprisonment in a maximum security prison or like a hundred thousand dollar fine. So yeah. needless to say, the country is in lockdown. Yeah, Georgie and I were talking a little bit about the possibility of martial law. And so people in the chat, is is that, are you seeing tanks being moved around? Because that is a frightening thing that I've seen on Twitter. Uh, yeah. But it'd be interesting to see kind of what you guys are noticing. Okay, so let's get <laughs> keep going through these super chats and we'll periodically take breaks. Um, where did we stop? Okay, Zhao, let me get back to you. Uh, Zhao Berg says, I've been dealing with PFF for years now. What causes the condition and what are some approaches for potentially solving it? Thank you. What's PFF? Uh, Post-finasteride syndrome. Oh, <laughs> oh that's, that's opening a whole can of worms. I mean, what's <laughs> causing it? Finasteride is causing it, but uh, there, there are multiple aspects to it. There's a metabolic aspect. There's an actual physical slash structural damage to the some of the nerves. Um, there's also a hormonal imbalance that finasteride causes. Um, and uh, uh, Ray seems to think that the gastrointestinal tract is also involved. And I happen to agree because I think finasteride, basically the androgens are, uh, are very intimately involved in the motility of the gastrointestinal tract. Oh, really? a, a few, yeah, a few recent um, animal trials um, animal studies, which I'll show, which I send you, show that uh, that uh, animal animal models with Alzheimer's, the mice and the rats have really degenerate gastrointestinal tracts, and that they gave these mice and rats dihydrotestosterone, the strong androgen, 
and you fix the GI symptoms and uh, recover partially the cognitive ability of the mice and the rats. So there's something going on in the gastrointestinal tract as well when androgens are low. And that's what nestrophenasteride does. I mean, basically, yes, it elevates your testosterone at the expense of dihydrotestosterone, but it, it looks like it's DHT that's really, that's really keeping your gastrointestinal uh, tract healthy. And that's corroborated by another study which demonstrated that in very old animals, if you give them an aromatase inhibitor, their gastrointestinal motility uh, recovers back to youthful levels. And many people can probably, older people can, uh, you know, can uh, relate to this because their their motility slows down. You know, they're they're having like uh, bowel movements once every few days instead of every day, and that seems to be due to low androgen slash high estrogen, at least in the males and in the females, it's probably the high estrogen, low progesterone environment. So, um, I mean, like I said, it's a multi-pronged, multi-factorial uh, uh, bag of reasons. Um, but ultimately, the it's I, I think addressing the metabolic aspect uh, by supplementing thyroid because finasteride has been shown to affect the thyroid directly would be a very important aspect. And also, um, you know, in, in cases where uh, where this doesn't help enough, uh, I think supplementation with progesterone and an androgen may be necessary because the the nerve damage that was noticed as a result of finasteride was uh, of a demyelinating type. And progesterone and pregnenolone are the two steroids mainly responsible for myelination. Um, so, you know, that supplementation with those may be needed to, to restore the, the sheet of the nerve. And then, you know, um, if there are persistent cognitive and sexual side effects, usually supplementation with some kind of an androgen is necessary. Um, I, I don't know if there's an easy solution, but, you know, so far the people that I know that have improved have used at least one of these uh, approaches. Um, and it's just, it's just a matter of, you know, I don't know if you're working with a doctor or not, but, you know, doctors may be on board about supplementing with the DHT. And that's probably the hardest part because it's DHT is hard to find. And, you know, it's unless you get it through a doctor, it's, you, know, you have to find online sources. But uh, once that's taken care of, then progenital progesterone and thyroid, they're, you know, relatively, um, you know, more easier. Uh, you, uh, you can obtain it more easily than the, than the androgens. Yeah, I got my only thought would be treating it like really, really bad hypothyroidism. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. With structural damage, yeah. which probably severe hypothyroidism can cause as well. But this one was demonstrated specifically on the nerve that was responsible for ejaculation and erection. There was a spinal nerve. I, I'm blanking on its name, but the study is posted on the forum. So if you search for it, you'll find it. Thank you for that, Georgie. Thank you, Zal Burr. Berg. Um, another one from Kirk. He says, Ray has said that the balding scalp grows shows high cortisol and PTH rather than T sensitivity. If one made life and diet changes to address this, how long would it take uh, to significantly lower cortisol? Um, I don't know if I'm one of these patients and my hair regrows almost completely in the summer. And, and I actually measure my hormones and I was actually a, a textbook, Ray textbook subject. Because when I, I lost my hair really quickly in my mid twenty in my sorry my mid thirties um, and basically when I did the test with my doctor my prolactin was fifty and my cortisol I think the the morning cortisol the uh, upper limit of normal is like twenty one and I was at forty two so so basically you know that that span of six months when I lost most of my hair my prolactin and cortisol were through the roof 
and I didn't miss, I need a measure PTH, but my vitamin D, I was actually in the insufficiency zone. So you have deficiency and insufficiency. So I was in the I was really the worst, you know, in the in, in the worst category that, that most people have. So after I started supplementing with vitamin D and was taking um, you know, basically cyproheptadine to lower my cortisol and progesterone. Then I noticed that over the summer, I grow about 80% of my hair. I have to take some pictures this summer and I'll show you. And then unfortunately, as basically the, the weather starts becoming bad as well, because I personally can't tolerate thyroid very well. Um, I mean, I'm noticing that between October and let's say March, my hair basically starts, to, I mean, I'm starting to get, uh, my, 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 I'm starting to lose hair again. But the good news is it's not a doesn't seem to be a permanent thing. So so it's definitely metabolic. Um, to what degree you can reverse it and keep it at that level, it's mostly mostly depends on you and your lifestyle and you know how much time you can put into it without distorting into into an into a uh, orthorexic you know uh, uh, exercise. You don't want to focus too much on it because then you're starting to generate some of the cortisol response yourself. Um, so if cortisol and prolactin um, and and PTH slash vitamin D are taken care of on a regular basis, um, I think most of the hair can be regrown back. There is nothing permanently damaged in the actual follicles. They're not dead. They're just living in a hypoxic environment, which it, which what these stress mediators promote. And I, I've often said, you telling me about your life, I feel like if I did all the things you had to do, I'd be dead. Like, you have a family to take care of, you have another job. Like, I feel, jobs, I feel, yeah. I feel like it's difficult <laughs> just taking care of myself. And so I think I really uh, admire you for that and feel like you deserve a medal. So I have on screen here, uh, I, po- I, po- I, I should have really taken more time to craft the tweet. <laughs> but um, oh, it says, I'm quoting from the paper. It says men with early onset androgenic alopecia, so-called, have increased DHEAS levels and worse gonadal steroidogenesis. And I got real excited because uh, it was actually just like a random Google Scholar search for um, seeing if if somebody had quoted a one of the high DHEA in pattern baldness papers. And then I, I found this and it had just come out. And um, they say... Basically, they found elevated DHEA and, and low serum testosterone, and some people and high were like, cortisol. "Yeah, and yeah, high yeah." And you, and you pointed out the high cortisol, yeah. and so the, I think the prolactin and the high DHEA are linked because, like, bromocryptine will actually drop the DHEA, DHEA and PCOS, yes. and I think yes. the stress in males. And so I think I think again, this like elucidates the real cause of the pattern baldness as like as accumulation of stress over a lifetime and also the tightening of the vascular supply i think and um and because just to I, point out it's it's key here that basically you know even though dha was high this was with early onset yeah as as the years progress eventually you will see a decline of dha as well and then these people will basically be in a state of high cortisol high prolactin and there'll be nothing to to um to oppose these stress mediators so I think at that point is when you're starting to see like a complete loss of hair. So it no longer looks like a androgenic pattern alopecia. It's basically, it becomes like a complete alopecia. Yeah. Um, they have no hair. Yeah. And then I, I posted a bunch of things under here, but from Ray's prostate cancer article, it says incre- uh, increasingly in both sexes, it, it, both sexes, it appears that DHEA may rise during stress as a result of a deficiency of thyroid progesterone and pregnenolone. The one thing I did want to ask you, have you seen any papers where it talks about, say somebody had high DHEA 
Does supplementing exogenous DHEA turn off the adrenals production and or the skin's production? Um, actually, I haven't seen that. I mean, I've seen that if you take too much DHA, it can suppress your gonadal production mm. because DHA turns very easily to estrogen. So if you take too much, uh, estrogen does have a negative feedback. And that's how when that people supplement with testosterone, they get themselves shut down. They're like, oh, my God, it's the testosterone doing it. No, it's actually testosterone converting into estrogen. And estrogen is known to suppress gonadal function by suppressing the pituitary as well. And that's actually why I think we discussed it in one of the podcasts where sometimes postmenopausal women, when they, when they get a little bit of an estrogen therapy, initially initially they feel relief. That's because the estrogen is suppressing the pituitary. Um, and you know, but if this continues for too long, then uh, then you start getting the, the bad side effects of estrogen. Anyway, so I don't think the DHA can suppress the adrenals. I think um, what happens if you take a sufficiently high amount of progesterone um, or um, or pregnenolone, you're probably going to get like a normalization of the adrenal. You're not going to suppress them to the point of, you know, they stop producing cortisol. If you take very high dosage of androgens, such as testosterone, um, DHT, or any of the androgenic, not any, but most of the androgenic anabolic steroids, they do suppress the adrenals. So you can actually get into a sort of a dangerous quasi-addison condition state, which is like a severe cortisol deficiency because you've suppressed your adrenals too much. The good news is that with DHEA, progesterone, and pregnenolone, you're not going to suppress your adrenals. You'll, it, you know, if you take a sufficient amount of pregnenolone and progesterone, you're just going to normalize the functionality. You're going to turn off the excessive function. I have on screen here an old article from 2009, and they say stress on, tress is gone. Uh, and it's basically how baldness is getting younger in like Indian kids and they blame it on yeah. uh, school, like the stress of, um, they say stress is one of the main factors responsible for acceleration of male pattern baldness, which is genetic, <laughs> but would express itself in forties. Uh, now we get hordes of school and college uh, going youngsters who have begun to go bald says uh, organizing chairman of the conference, Dr. Suresh Joshapira. That's horrible. At school, in school, can you imagine this? These are like teenagers going bald. Well, I remember yeah. on, being on like a hair loss form and somebody posting, uh, it must have been like ch- monks, like young uh, male, uh, young men, not men, ch- children, monks. And it, their heads were all like forward on the photo. And you could see that a lot of them had like, like uh, just receding hairlines and things. But they were really wow. young. They were probably around 10, 13. And it was like wow. clearly something is like. Not so right. the articles that I've been posting on the young becoming the old, you know, we're not seeing this only in the West. We're seeing it in basically all over the world. Stress is, you know, is really pervasive. Yeah, exactly. Okay, wow. we can move on because we have lots of super chats. Um, uh, thank you for that, Kirk. Chris H. Thank you so much, Chris. He says, Doctor Pete, many uh, uh, many people report benefits of. Uh, Increase energy on NoFap. What are your thoughts on semen retention and an increase in metabolic rate? Did I not say that we're not trying to, uh, we can't uh, fill in for raise information. We're just trying yeah. to do this because it wasn't clear. You know, I, I wasn't, I could, I should have been more clear on uh, us not answering them, but we're just trying to be a secondary consolation prize for the people that shelled out money for us to answer questions. I think I did say that, but just probably good to say it again. Yeah, I can answer for Dr. Pete. I mean, I I can tell you my opinion, right? Um, So I don't think the semen retention itself is anything special. I think it's simply um, sort of the abstinence for the first, I think, seven to 10 days has been shown to lower prolactin 
and increase testosterone. But after that, basically, depending on the on the length of the abstinence, it becomes sort of a stressor itself. Because if you're in a relatively young age and or good health, um, basically, libido will be high and will be getting higher. And if at some point it's not getting sort of uh, satisfied, this itself can actually become a stress factor. And it can become a pretty severe stress factor itself. It has been shown that... Uh, Severe abstinence induced for religious reasons in monks, for example, believe it or not, there are studies on that, um, can actually lead to uh, severe cognitive slash mental disturbances. Um, so, uh, yes, for the first, you know, and, and again, the studies are, you know, they're, they're looking at the population, so it'll give you an average number. Um, but the, the, the studies that I have seen show that first seven to 10 days seem to have a beneficial effect on the hormonal profile, but they didn't look at anything else. And then other studies saw people who were abstinent for like six months to a year and the results were not good. I mean, these people were basically like, I don't want to say they were, they were losing their mind, but they were aggressive. Um, they were uh, like, uh, they, they were losing their thought when they were in a conversation. They couldn't focus. Um, they lost interest in their normal day-to-day -day activities. <laughs> you know, all, all they had on their mind was sex, right? Um, and uh, eventually, even that urge actually disappeared. So that's a strange thing. And, and, and basically, after about a year, uh, these monks that are in, in sort of self-isolation uh, lost their, their sexual desire. And then um, after that, basically, they, you know, they started getting severe cognitive disturbances. They, they started um, you know, forgetting people that they know. Um, you know, they're starting, um, you know, they're starting to isolate themselves, you know, sort of like self-imposed social isolation. Um, and that's usually a, a sign of, uh, you know, beginning schizoid type personality disorders, if you want to use the modern terminology. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't do it for too long. I mean, basically, depending on your health and age, um, you know, a few weeks to a month may help. But I don't think it's something that should be practiced because it, it will always have health effects. After a while, this this uh, uh, deprivation, uh, because that's what it is, it's, you're depriving yourself of a fulfillment of a physiological need. After a while, this deprivation will itself become um, a source of stress. Sweet. Uh, yeah, I, and I think it's like the physiology, like Ray said something a long time ago that stayed with me, but that high estrogen could cause like an insatiable interest in sex. I think we've said this like mm -hmm. a, a many times on this show, but I really do think that's true. And I think the difference might be the satisfaction at climax. So I think maybe when you orgasm, it, it, it doesn't feel as good as maybe when you were like a teenager. And so, Between females, I want to emphasize, because high estrogen will reliably cause hypersexuality and lack of satisfaction in females, not in males. In males, if you have if you have high estrogen, you'll tend to have lower androgens. And in that case, if estrogen is high, prolactin will be high and you'll usually have no libido. But yeah, as far as the insatiable desire, sort of like the nymphomaniacs, there are actually studies, believe it or not, on nymphomaniacs, uh, females, and uh, the majority of them, if I remember Correctly, 82% of one study that I saw basically had elevated estrogen. Sweet. Okay, we're on page two. We have like seven pages to get through. So we're <laughs> no, going to be able to answer all of this. <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a stop at like, I don't know, oh. 11 o'clock. Okay, well, okay, tell me when. Okay, we're at 1, 11. Uh, we'll get through these as quickly as possible. Um, uh, <laughs> okay, um, Harrison, Ben, what is the ideal body fat percentage range for males and females? Um, I, I think for females, it depends uh, on age and whether they're uh, 
they're planning on having children or they're pregnant or like they're, you know, shortly after having a child. Um, so for males, it also depends on the age, but then you leanness, you're actually doing a disservice to yourself and it's pretty dangerous. So, you, you know, um, most of the studies that I've seen show that if you, if you, if your natural, um, body fat is at the point where your BMI is between 30 and 33, that's actually ideal in terms of longevity and resistance to a number of chronic diseases. It does risk your risk. It does your, does raise your risk for some of them or some other ones. But in general, the mortality rate is actually lower if you're uh, if you're over 35 and your BMI if you're male, uh, if your BMI is between 30 and 33, and it's actually increasing. Mortality is increasing if you're below or above that. But um, interestingly, even the morbidly obese. Were actually had less uh, had lower mortality rates than people who are considered skinny, who had a BMI I think of about between 24 and 25. If you're a male and if you're over 35, and, and that held especially true if the BMI, the low BMI, was maintained through exercise. In other words, if you're because that's what exercise does, it it artificially erases your metabolic rate, so you burn these calories for stress, and this is done through adrenaline and cortisol. So it shouldn't be a surprise that chronic adrenaline and cortisol are not good for you. And then for females, um, I think it varies, right? I mean, basically, um, uh, it's been shown that, that females who are lean um, before they become pregnant, basically, they have trouble becoming pregnant. So having a little bit of extra fat helps. And then if the BMI is below 27, I believe, um, then the woman has a much higher chance of miscarriage. So um, I don't think there is a single best BMI. I think it varies through life. When you're younger, um, you know, it should be naturally lower. Um, but anything below, I think anything below 25, it's already indicative of a problem. Um, and then as you're growing older, your BMI should rise, right? Um, you know, um, unless you're doing exercise. But if you're doing exercise to maintain the low BMI, that's usually not a good sign. It's Sign that you're hypothyroid, you should be seeking other means. You should be raising your resting metabolic rate and not the metabolic rate during exercise. Um, so I would say for a male over 35 and for a female, so for a male over 35, between 30 and 33, it seems to be optimal to keep the mortality rate the lowest, uh, all-cause mortality. Um, now, if you start breaking it down into diseases, then you start seeing some differences. I mean, higher BMI for males, it increases the... Um, risk of colon cancer and cardiovascular disease, but it lowers the risk of a number of other cancers. Um, and I think recent studies show that it lowers the risk of Parkinson's disease and potentially Alzheimer's as well. So if you want to take the ballpark and the, you know, sort of the average of it all, between 30 and 33 for males over 35, and I think between 28 and 30 for females over the age of 35. Again, this, this is overgeneralization. If you pick an age group, specific age group, and a specific lifestyle, you know, and time of life for a specific person, then there's probably a, a, another different optimal range. But if you want uh, sort of like a generic answer for both sexes beyond a certain age, that's the one that I've seen. Wait, thank you. Okay, mini break. Uh, follow Georgie on Twitter, uh, uh, twitter.com slash hate it. Idealabsdc.com, Georgie's uh, boutique supplement company. And uh, I do coaching. Just follow me on Telegram. And next week, I think it's supposed to be me, but it's kind of up in the air. We'll see what happens. Um, and then after that is Emma. And then after that is Ray and Georgie. So that should be a good schedule.
Okay. Excellent. Francis, uh, Francis Bacon Cheeseburger says, two drops of cortinone on my skin makes me grumpy as if raising my cortisol adrenaline, adrenaline levels. Am I dosing incorrectly? It doesn't happen with progestine. Um, I don't know what to tell you, but I know that there, there's uh, a number of publications demonstrating that, uh, that progesterone raises allopregnanolone, especially when used in lower doses. And allopregnanolone has paradoxical, so-called paradoxical effects. Actually, it's on the Wikipedia page. If you go to type allopregnanolone, go to the Wikipedia page and scroll. I think there's like a section for mood effects, I believe. There's a paragraph there that basically talks about paradoxical effects in a U-curve, like a U-curve shape, uh, dose response effect. So in lower doses and higher doses, progesterone worsens mood because of its conversion to allopregnanolone. But, you know, in moderate dosages around... 50 to 75 milligrams daily, it doesn't have that effect. So you may be getting the uh, allopregnanolone paradoxical effects. Um, and also the progestee, uh, depending on which version you use. So um, I don't think they can be compared directly because the progestee is a tocopherol-based uh, solution and uh, product, and most people take it orally, at least to my understanding. Um, while the cortinones that we have, one of them is the SFA slash ethanol version, and that's the one most people use topically, um, and it has a different absorption. Um, uh, uh, sort of, I don't know how to say it. Uh, a different absorption profile compared to Progesty, and really different effects because the DHEA um, actually competes with progesterone for access to the enzyme 5 alpha reductase. So the effects that you're going to get from cortinone are different, uh, both metabolically and, and hormonally, than what you'll get from pure Progesty. Um, also, the progestee, um, I've been told by people that they actually they feel the effects of progestee a lot later than they do feel the effects of cortinone. And I think the fact that progestee uses uh, vitamin E is, is uh, one reason, because if you ingest it, it takes several hours for the progesterone levels in the blood to rise to the point where you started to feel the progesterone effects. And vitamin E in progestee also slows down the, um, the absorption, the uptake of the progesterone into the cell. Um, and these effects can last up to 48 hours because that's the half-life of vitamin E in the body. Um, with cortinone, especially if you're doing the SFA ethanol version, the effects tend to be much more rapid and there the, the tends to be like a much quicker, higher influx into progesterone and DHA into the bloodstream. And of course, you know, much quicker fall afterwards. Um, so my guess would be to answer your question is that you're getting the allopregnanolone response. I will try a different dosage um, and also different times of the day. Um, the reports that I've been, I've been getting some other reports about headaches, but they, people said that they're only getting it when they're using cortinone before bed, but when they use it in the morning or in the middle of the day, they didn't get the headache. Sweet. Oh, man. <laughs> I really bit off more than I could chew here. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, is it normal to have low body temperature at home on a day off? Uh, when I'm busy at work, it goes up to 37 uh, or close. Should I still be 37 on a day off? Well, I think it's a classic sign of low metabolism, basically. And the fact that while you're at work and while you're busy, doesn't rise above 37. I mean, if this was due to a, a good thyroid function, you would see it rise to 38, um, you know, um, 38 uh, uh, to even 38 and a half. 
I'm, I'm presuming the person is speaking about Celsius, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you're, you know, if when you're calm, if your temperature falls down, this is a classic indication, a classic sign that you're running on um, on stress hormones because it's the adrenaline and cortisol that can raise the temperature when you're under stress, but they're not thermogenic enough to raise the temperature, your core temperature, they're only raising the peripheral one. So that's why when you measure temperature, you usually don't go above 37 when you're under stress. Um, I would try to eat a little bit of salt while you're calm or eat some kind of a salty snack and see if that re- remediates the situation. If it doesn't, you may want to test thyroid function and see where you stand in that because you may be in need of actual thyroid supplementation. Georgie, if you could live anywhere, in, uh, where would it be? What were the main f- factors for the consideration? Somewhere at higher elevation than where I'm currently. I mean, I'm very close. I mean, I'm almost at the sea level right now. Uh, I would want to be somewhere at, at least, let's say, let's see, 500. I would say about 2,000 feet would be my uh, preferred uh, altitude. Um, I don't, I mean, I do like sunshine. I don't want to be living too far north or too far south where you're basically getting these like prolonged, even, you know, months long. <laughs> periods of like not not sufficient uh, sunshine i like some of the latin american countries close to the equator uh, i like the andes mountains clearly obviously it's a very nice area there um i do like europe i mean i wouldn't mind living in the alps um you know and if i had enough money and you know didn't have to take care of children and and you know do my household chores i would probably visit my italian friend in the tianxian mountains i mean he seems to be doing pretty well um he sends me pictures every once in a while. His hair is still there. He <laughs> hasn't lost his hair ever since he regained it. Um, and the commune there seems to be doing fine. It's uh, comprised mostly of expatriates. Um, they're not, I mean, they're about 40% American, um, but, uh, you know, there's a decent portion of people from Europe and Russia. There's some Latin Americans as well. And they're kind of like, the only reason I haven't done this already, I mean, at least visit them, is that they're a bit of like the Doomer culture, like the Dooms preppers. They've sort of given up on the world and they're sitting there and they're kind of waiting for the for the end of the world. So unless you have that same mentality, you're probably not going to fit in very well. And, uh, you know, after about a week, you're going to start getting on their nerves and they're going to start getting on yours and you'll have to leave. So to answer your question, um, a higher altitude, at least 2,000 feet. And uh, I would say, you know, no more than uh, 35 to 40 degrees away from the equator. Um, and then in terms of uh, countries, I would say any country that's that's you know that's peaceful and you know doesn't have uh, high prospects for war. I mean, I don't need to tell anybody that war is not good. And what was that saying? There's never been such a thing as a as a, a good war and a bad peace. I think there was like a U.S. president who said this once, and I couldn't agree more. Sweet. Okay. Uh, thanks for that. Um... <laughs> I don't <laughs> know what to do with all these questions. Uh, Harrison, Ben, uh, thoughts on, oh no, I didn't, um, we talked about progesterone a lot. Okay, let's go to the next page here. Guys, sorry, I have to, I don't know what to do. I, I have to skip some of these. Uh, these are topics we've talked about frequently. Um, uh, there was another, maybe we can do, uh, hit, uh, two birds with one stone. Is there anything I can do to help with a tinnitus? Uh, it gets worse at night. Yep. I just posted something on my blog. You can check it out. A serotonin antagonist can actually cure it completely. Um, so tinnitus is actually very, it's at this point, it's well known to be to be related to gastrointestinal irritation. Um, and with people ask Pete in the past, he keeps talking about endotoxin and nitric oxide. 
but um, you know, like uh, the remedies that are people try there tend to be to work only temporarily. Specifically, take charcoal. Yet uh, in many cases, actually, it will stop the tinnitus completely. But after a few hours, or you know, upon your next meal, it will reoccur. Um, and in this study that uh, that I posted, it's about one serotonin antagonist. I think the study with humans actually cured it for good. Um, so, so it seems to be driven the direct the, the the pathological agent in this case seems to be serotonin. But serotonin is of course you know produced 90% is produced in the gut, so it's probably caused by something else, and that something else is usually the endotoxin. So in terms of managing it on an ongoing basis keeping endotoxin levels as low as possible, eating easily digestible food, taking the antibiotics if you have to, you know, the traditional remedies for keeping the GI tract coming along. And for, for specifically severe cases, you may want to try some uh, some uh, di- uh, some Benadryl. There's a drug called Dramamine that they sell in stores. They seems to work, but it seems to be only temporary. And it, it seems to also have serotonergic effects. And people complain that when they use it, in, uh, for, uh, that they use it long-term, it actually makes their situation worse. It actually, initially, it, the tinnitus abates. It never disappears. It abates in or other more specific serotonin antagonists uh, that maybe, you know, maybe even a, a better approach. And you have to go at the end of this hour? Yeah, at 11 o'clock, I, I have to leave. <laughs> okay, guys, we're definitely not getting through all these super chats. We have like... Many, many questions. And then we're getting more as we, the time goes on. I mean, um, think about it. Like if- with those shows, where it's, just, it's impossible to... I just, I just received many emails of people that were really upset. And so I wanted to leave it open because I'm going to send Ray like a fat check of all these super chats <laughs> once I get the money in my Google AdSense. But um, I, yeah, it, it's even impossible to answer, uh, even make a dent in them and... and uh, I don't know. We've been on here for close to two hours. So, so yeah, I guess, and, and I guess we should maybe before you leave, maybe try to answer some of the, um, the ones we just got. <laughs> oh, so you got more. Yeah. So these are new ones. Man, we're in like in, up to super chats and, uh, our eyeballs here. Um, okay. So, you know what? I mean, maybe, maybe we should have like different kinds of shows. Like we have like a, show because it's then it's also stretching for too long if we're doing both discussions and super chats maybe there should be like a like a like a only like a chat answering session right mm-hmm. and also like a maybe a session only for discussions well i feel like this has inhibited our ability to talk which is like <laughs> kind of not that fun uh but again i it's my fault i said this was going to be just answering questions so have to work that out in in some way um uh, okay, uh, Sam MP for four ninety nine. We talked about tin ninus already. Thank you so much, Sam. Sam says uh, Astroband okay with high serum calcium one point twenty five uh, cal's sit. Um, I, I don't I, I don't see why it would be a problem. I mean, vitamin E usually the high serum calcium if it's not caused by vitamin D deficiency, which uh, makes PTH rise and prolactin makes, often also rises. Um, I'm sorry. So if it's not caused by the vitamin D deficiency, which makes PTH rise, the uh, elevated calcium, the second most common cause is actually elevated, slightly elevated estrogen slash prolactin. So, um, so if anything, the vitamins that are in estroband should be help, help, should be helping lower prolactin and estrogen, and the vitamin D should be helping to lower PTH. But you know, just to make sure, you may want to do some tests for vitamin D, parathyroid hormone. 
um, and phosphorus, serum phosphorus, um, and prolactin, and see where you stand on that. Because if you know that it's the prolactin that's causing it, if all other things are coming back normal, then you know that estrogen is actually supposed to help. So you shouldn't even be concerned about, uh, you know, about it potentially hurting. Uh, yes or no question. Have you experimented with uh, pure DHT? Uh, yes, I have. Uh, but it was a very, so it was early in my Peterian years. It was back in 2014 and I got a very small sample and uh, I ran out of very quickly. And since then I haven't been able to obtain more. So uh, I, I thought the effects were, were amazing. I mean, basically um, I didn't, I didn't notice that many um, uh, bodily effects, but the mental effects were astounding. I mean, it immediately removed my brain fog and I was able to like read for hours without even feeling the need to get up and eat or drink or do anything else. It calmed me down in a way that I, you know, I, I haven't experienced, I haven't used anything else since then that will do that. I mean, cyproheptanin can calm you down if you take sufficient amount of it, but it also makes you feel like a zombie. So you can, other than sleeping, you can't really do much afterwards. While DHT gives you this clarity and calmness of mind, no racing thoughts whatsoever, no worries, no anxiety, and you can do whatever you want for hours. Um, I thought it was more of a mental drug than anything else. So I, you know, I was surprised that people think of it as an androgenic anabolic steroid. Um, my experience with it was that it was much more of a mental drug, almost like a, you know, uh, amphetamines or anything like that. But amphetamines tend to make people jittery after a while. So it was, anyways. Purely mental slash cognitive effect for me. Um, even though I, you know I like the, the the physiological effects, like it did harden up my muscles, but it was not like these steroids that people would use to get them pumped up. And if you talk to bodybuilders, they'll tell you DHT is not the steroid to use for that. You you get it mostly to to cut your physique, to lower body fat, and for the they call it like the the, the alpha male personality. You become assertive, you become confident. You you know you know what you want and you go after it. I don't know about that latter part. I mean, I do think that it makes you more perceptive and more able to do cognitive work. I don't think it makes you the alpha male that the, that, that the bodybuilders are claiming uh, they will make you. Like the aggressiveness and the the pursuit of females and, and money and resources and whatnot. I think that's a, there are several studies that have shown this is like a, actually a spillover effect from high testosterone going into estrogen through aromatase. Um, when you give people... When you give uh, high testosterone people aromatase inhibitors, they actually stop taking as many risks. So the whole risk-taking, macho lifestyle and attitude, that seems to be uh, more of an effective estrogen than androgens. Sweet. I've never taken it, so I've never, I don't have any experiences with it. Um, Michael asked this question multiple times. He says, Dear Danny and Georgie, uh, what, what do you think of milk sugar and heat as in dolce de leche and cajeta? Are they problematic? Um, I why would they be problematic? Yeah, no, I think they're okay. Uh, I think milk sugar and like heating the sugar, the Malliard products. Oh, the Malliard reaction. Yeah, um, I don't think it's a problem. It's like it becomes a caramel, right? So um, I have no, I have not seen any studies that that demonstrate because I know there are studies that feed like a caramelized sugar to animals, and I've read them. I don't, I, I did not see a study that found bad effects from. Caramelized sugar. I, I think Ray had a funnier response to somebody that asked a similar. I, I, I hope I'm not misquoting uh, him, but he said something like, yeah, they do have bad products and I'm not going to stop eating them. <laughs> so it's kind of like classic uh, Ray. Um, okay, we have about 10 minutes left for Georgie here. 
Um, somebody asked why I block people. I'm, I feel like I'm extremely lenient <laughs> on people and it's usually like a level of rudeness that is, uh, really egregious over a long period of time that finally gets me to, to block a person. But I really, there really... is something to be said for blocking people more easily. I think it's because if you tolerate the weirdness, um, so not the weirdness, but like the obnoxious for too long. Then it's it comes as a shocker when you block people because you're like, were you tolerated for so long? What, what happened now? I've been I, the same asshole as before. So if somebody, I I think the kicker is uh, the time the few times I've done it is people told me to stop doing something. Like I, I think I had posted something oh, on yeah. ketogenic diets, and the person was like, stop posting this ketogenic diet stuff, and they just had such a long history of just being really unbearable that i was like okay i think um i think things yeah, are for now. done here yeah. okay uh thank you for that uh, lisa mana um guys i'm so sorry we're like uh, really screwing up here on super chats <laughs> i will have to work this out um uh jaeger oda says thoughts on high dose aspirin caffeine for a similar mitochondrial uncoupling effects i i, I feel like we've answered this question a dozen times uh, on DN, maybe even uh, effects of DNP for weight loss. You don't have to spend a ton of time on this. Well, the, uh, there's a study that's one of the first studies you quoted on your blog from my posting on the forum. You show that uh, that caffeine at uh, a concentration of 250 micromoles per liter had equivalent effects to, di- to dinitrophenol. In order to get to that concentration in the cell, you need about 1,200 to 1,500 milligrams of caffeine. That's 1.2 to 1.5 grams. Um, I don't know if that it's a safe thing to. I mean, the, the 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 really dangerous effects of caffeine start to happen after about three grams per, per person. But it's caffeine can be dangerous. It really depends on the person, their weight, their age, their their liver status, and how quickly they metabolize it. So uh, I don't know if it's safe to ingest that much caffeine in one sitting. I think something like maybe 400 milligrams a few times a day combined, maybe you know. Um, I don't know, like uh, two tablets of aspirin per pop, that would probably get you close to what dinitrophenol does um, without running into the same side effects of overheating and potentially even killing you uh, from hyperthermia and dehydration. Um, so I, I think it's a viable approach. Um, I think thyroid can do the same. I think progesterone can actually do the same much more safely uh, because with progesterone, <laughs> If you start taking too much, it will knock you out. So you will be drunk for a while and you won't be able to overdose through you on it. Um, well, with uh, aspirin and, uh, and caffeine, basically like you, it's, you won't know you've overdosed until it's too late. Well, with progesterone, it's, it's just going to knock you out. Uh, so yeah, it is a viable approach. I just wouldn't necessarily take that dose in one sitting that will give you the equivalence to dinitrophenol. I think it's better to it will get less of an effect, but it will be safer if you spread it throughout the day. Thanks for that. Cardo Chav says, can you talk about methylene blue uh, could raise serotonin? What what doses could trigger that pathway? Um, So methylene blue is, uh, it's confirmed to be a monoamine oxidase type A inhibitor. And that enzyme is the one that degrades most of the serotonin and dopamine um, in, in the body. Um, there's also monoamine oxidase type B, and that enzyme mostly has preference for degrading dopamine. So um, back in the day when they were coming up with these antidepressant drugs, right? So they developed both 
mono, uh, monoamine type A inhibitors and type B inhibitors. They noticed that both of them had antidepressant effects, but the monoamine type A were working better uh, and quicker, but they also had the potential risk of causing serotonin syndrome. That's probably how, uh, that's actually the main uh, mechanism, uh, that's the main mechanism through which methylene blue may raise serotonin. Now, there are published case studies with methylene blue triggering serotonin syndrome, but to my knowledge, it's, it has always been in conjunction with some other drug, um, like a, a selective serotonin reuptake, reuptake inhibitor, which already increases extracellular serotonin. It has never been methylene blue by itself. And actually, I do know of two cases, two published cases where methylene blue by itself triggered serotonin syndrome. But it was, both cases was in the hospital. The person was in shock. Um, they were undergoing surgery. And basically, they had um, three to 400, three to 400 milligrams of methylene blue pumped into their, into their body intravenously over a period of less than a minute. So yes, in those doses, under those circumstances, it can probably be dangerous. But keep in mind that human studies have used methylene blue orally in dosages of about 50 milligrams daily with profound beneficial effects on mental health. I think it cured completely uh, treatment-resistant depression that the study said that it was not amenable to anything else and also stopped psychosis, basically, which is known to be caused by serotonin. Um, so the two human studies that used 50 milligrams daily orally noted absolutely no side effects. Now, it can be a problem if the person is taking something else that is already inhibiting monoamine type A, uh, monoamine oxidase type A, and or raising serotonin through other means. Um, so if you're taking any kind of a supplement and it has tryptophan in it, right, then it could be potentially dangerous to use methylene blue with it. But if you're eating your normal diet uh, and you're not taking any drugs that are elevating serotonin, um, inhibiting its uptake or inhibiting its degradation, in other words, other monoamine oxidase inhibitors, in the doses that were shown that methylene blue works remarkably well for humans for mental disease, and recently the Alzheimer's study showed that um, the basically the benefits plateaued at about 60 milligrams per day, which is remarkably close to the 50 milligrams used by these older studies for mental health conditions. At those dosages, I'm not aware of anybody ever having problems with methylene blue causing some kind of a serotonergic problem, um, you know, unless they were also taking something else. And even then, the dose is too low, uh, you know, for it, for it to be causing serious issues. But, you know, because of that, I would cap methylene blue usage for most people at 15 milligrams daily, simply because the studies show that even for Alzheimer's, you're not getting any more benefit. And if you're taking the, those 50 milligrams, it helps to spread them out at about, let's say, three doses daily at five milligrams each is safer in terms of causing serotonin toxicity than taking the whole 50 milligrams you know, once a day. Um, and if you're really concerned about that, you can take methylene blue with a little bit of vitamin B2, also known as riboflavin, because the monoamine oxidase type A enzyme is the cofactors for it are um, riboflavin, vitamin B2, and copper. So if you add even one of the factors, you're gonna speed up its effects. So you will, likely negate most of the risks that methylene blue would cause, even if you're one of those unfortunate people that, that will get these side effects at a low dosage. So methylene blue at whatever dose you want, not more than 50 milligrams daily with let's say five milligrams of vitamin B, vitamin B2 
should be enough to keep the risk acceptably low. Guys, give us a like for Georgie's amazing stream of consciousness here. Sincerely appreciate it. And subscribe to the channel if you're not already subscribed. We have uh, Mr. Tim Burzins in the, uh, the chat here. Thanks for uh, hanging out, Tim. Okay, just a few more. We'll let Georgie go. Uh, Let's keep going until 11.15. I mean, okay, got, okay, okay. Okay, okay amazing. So, so we can okay. have another 15 minutes. Okay, good. Okay, let me just make sure we don't skip any super chats on that people actually asked for the show. Um, uh, Harry Burgo says, Georgie, can you, uh, so this needs no response. <laughs> Georgie, mm-hmm. can you please post the link title on your site to the older paper you mentioned in the last Danny Roddy live stream in which PUFAs decrease cellular resistance to viral infections as well as increase cell water uptake. So I think that's in reference to the conversation with Ray. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that's good. Thank you so much, Harry. Appreciate it. Uh, Brandon, this could be a very, very long question uh, or answer. So we'll just stick to the elevator pitch. But Brandon Green says optimal bioenergetic, bioenergetic relationship between polyunsaturated fats and monounsaturated. Uh, in terms of like what what ratio should be eaten in the in the diet, or yeah, uh, I think I think so. Um, I mean, actually, so so here's the thing. I uh, I've looked at all the studies of essential fatty acid deficiency, um, and none of the animals died. So, and actually, the the studies that I've seen, minus the Burr study, which claimed they were getting these you know signs of like their skin was cracking, they were starting to bleed through like these cracks in the skin, they were getting these scales, right? I mean, they were getting really skinny, uh, they were shivering, right? Uh, actually, if you look at some of the other studies that are more recent, I mean, they're still in the, from the like mid, the mid nineties and uh, the, the mid nineteen, uh, the mid twentieth century, nineteen fifties up to like nineteen seventies. None of them mentioned these these signs and symptoms, but they did test and showed that these rats, the uh, little hamsters or mice or whatever they use, were remarkably resilient to things like uh, lethal endotoxin shock, lethal uh, exposure to ionizing radiation. Um, like a lethal trauma to the head that would normally, in some laboratories, they actually kill the animals by like a very, very uh, powerful blow to the head or the neck, which dislocates the like the cervical, uh, breaks the, the the cervical area of the spinal uh, of the spinal column, um, and um, none of these none of these studies showed that essential fatty acid deficiency had any negative effects on the animals. If anything, it made them like almost you know, super resilient to whatever stressors the, the studies were trying to test. So if you ask me, the optimal ratio of PUFA to, uh, to monounsaturated fats is zero. Uh, I mean, um, and actually even for the monounsaturated fats, um, I think they're neutral in a healthy person, but in, in a uh, unhealthy person or a person that has like, let's say is already uh, overweight, has an excess weight, it has a problem with excess lipolysis, uh, monounsaturated fats, pyruvate dehydrogenase, are palmitic, stearic, myristic, and lauric, and a few other of the saturated group, but none of the, definitely none of the polyunsaturated fats. In fact, they're known inhibitors of pyruvate dehydrogenase, and none of the monounsaturated groups are known to activate that enzyme. So uh, if, you know, so as far as the ratio, I would keep it as close to zero as possible. And if you have to eat monounsaturated fats, I would still make sure that their ratio towards the saturated fats is basically less than one. In other words, you're eating more saturated fat than monounsaturated fat. Sweet. Thank you so much for that. Uh, who answered that question? Brandon, thank you. Answered Michael's question. 
Uh, Anne, I'm going to refer you to an early part of our conversation. Anne says, can you please give me insight on suggestions for high DHEA, prolactin, cholesterol, and at the same time, low vitamin D and CO2. I have PCOS, anxiety, no energy. So definitely check the thyroid function because that would bring down the cholesterol, prolactin, and DHEA. And correcting the vitamin D would probably be important. And Georgie, do you have any other? Also, uh, PCOS is, a, is actually now and at this point uh, fairly well known to be driven by estrogen. Uh, so in the early state, estrogen is what irritates the adrenals. And while they're still working well, we'll be pumping out a lot of DHEA. But with age, that has been shown to eventually DHEA production declines and you're stuck with only the estrogen. And that's really when all the bad, the really bad problems with PCOS start. So um, surprisingly, you know, or unsurprisingly, there's some older studies that show that aromatase inhibitors can actually stop uh, PCOS in its tracks. Um, but most doctors, they shy away from that because estrogen is stopped is such a beneficial female hormone. Nobody wants to inhibit it. So the, you know, if the situation becomes really bad, I think high dose of progesterone may help. Uh, I've, I have clients, female clients who've said that high doses of aspirin have helped. Um, and I also have clients which have, sh which have said that cyproheptadine actually managed to fully stop their PCOS. Uh, and in many cases, reverse some of the, some of the fibroid cystic, cystic effects that they had. And uh, I was initially surprised by that, but recently I saw studies showing that cyproheptadine has a remarkably in, a strong inhibiting effect on estrogen receptor alpha. So it is a very viable and potent anti-estrogenic drug as well. So if progesterone or aspirin or vitamin E are not working for you for whatever reason, or the situation is really dire, um, you may want to consider cyproheptadine as well. Great stuff. Uh, thank you for that, Anne. Uh, answer Ricardo Chavs. Um, oh, uh, Rami says getting good effects warmth from Niagen. Getting either Niagen. Oh, is this like the the nicotinamide riboside supplement? Let me just check. I've never even. Is this your one yeah, of your products? I think that's what it is. Okay, Niagen. Yeah, uh, getting either better effects uh, or awful nausea diarrhea from plain niacin uh, niacinam niacin amide. Yeah, yeah. Niagen is the is the patented uh, nicotinamide riboside. Okay, and, and he says why is to stick to the night um, to the NR in this case or sirtuins more important. So, I mean, if if the niagen is affecting you well, and if it happens to be like a, if you look at the label and it doesn't have any problematic ingredients, I don't have a problem with using niagen uh, slash nicotinamide riboside. Um, one issue with it is cost, of course. It's patented. It's uh, the 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 prices that I've seen are usually you know, about ten times more than something like plain niacinamide. Uh, the other thing about niacin and slash nicotinamide riboside is that it activates the certain genes, um, and uh, those genes are known to be involved in fatty acid oxidation, and they're now known to be involved in many, if not most, cancers. Nicotinamide slash niacinamide is the most potent known clinically used sirtuin inhibitor. Um, and just as a comparison, uh, resveratrol is, is, was promoted and continues to be promoted uh, as one of the most potent sirtuin and niacinamide on the sirtuins. And I have a few studies posted on the forum in my blog showing that the activation of the sirtuins is intimately involved in the progression, actually even in the initiation, but also the progression of, uh, of many cancers. So one thing that would concern me about 
nicotinamide riboside slash niagen is its activation of the sirtuins. Um, but I think if you're staying at the dosages that they recommend on most supplements, which I think is 75 milligrams daily, I don't think the, the certain overactivation would be a concern. Now, it, it is interesting that plain niacinamide gives you nausea. Uh, in my experience, that, that only happens in two cases. Either the dosage of niacinamide taken is too high and or there are certain excipients in the, in the product that, 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 that are causing this. And personally, I get nausea from niacinamide supplements that contain either silica or um, hydroxypropyl methylcellulose, I think is what it's called. Um, it's, it's this uh, binder and filler that's used in, 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 in capsules. So if you can find niacinamide that's like plain powder or capsules that show no other ingredients and try the same dosage as nicotinamide riboside, uh, I think I'll be very interested to compare the results because when I, whenever I compared apples to apples, in other words, pure ingredients of both types of products uh, at the same dosages or similar dosages, I never, I never got nausea. Um, I did get nausea from a niagen product sold in CVS, and that one contains silica. So I think it comes down to excipients, most likely, and if not, then it's it's an issue of dose mismatch. Then maybe the niacinamide dosage was too high. Wait, only like uh, three more, I think. Or... All right. Good. Thank you, Georgie. Uh, guys, give it up for Georgie. You know, he's here just donating his time. Uh, sincerely appreciating that, making that this show what it is. So sincerely appreciate you, Georgie. And always have fun with you doing these, maybe except for this one. <laughs> I mean, it's still fun. You know, you get to hear what people think, you know, what, 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 uh, what are their concerns? That's what that's what it's all about, actually. We might have to cleanse ourselves, uh, cleanse ourselves of the past super chats to kind of move on, <laughs> because we I don't think we can keep doing this. Um, okay, who did I not uh, get here? Talked about Rami's question. Oh, okay. Matthew Riley says RP mentioned uh, vitamin B one for protection against COVID. How much daily B one is safe? it posted um about certain doses of b1 b1 being linked to cancer uh yeah i mean that, that study that i posted said that uh, lower dosages of vitamin uh, b1 i think they said up to 200 times the rda uh that study thought it would promote cancer and then very much higher dosages in the several hundred milligrams daily would inhibit it because of the role of vitamin b1 as a cofactor for pyruvate dehydrogenase and also vitamin B1, uh, it happens to be a direct inhibitor of carbonic anhydrase. So it promotes the, 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 the elevation of CO2 and the metabolism of glucose um, through two different pathways. So um, I think, the, I mean, when people asked uh, repeat about his timing uh, usage, um, he said that he used to take 50 milligrams to 100 milligrams before certain exams. I think he was studying French at the time. Um, so that was his daily dosage. Um, I've seen great responses uh, with about 300 milligrams, but split into different smaller doses throughout the day because I think it's basically it helps the absorption. It's it's much more complete. So you're gonna get more of that 300 milligrams into your body if you split into two smaller doses of 100 milligrams each than if you take that one capsule uh, once daily. But it's still even once daily seems seems to work well, and it's the 300 milligrams daily and above that happens to be the required dosage for achieving the carbonic anhydrase inhibition. Now, in this case, 
I don't, I don't think that plays a role in inhibiting the, the viral uptake inside of the cell. Um, uh, but you know, if, if you want to raise the CO2, I'll take 300 milligrams or more. Maybe there's no need to do more than 500 milligrams uh, unless you have a underlying condition that you're trying to treat. Um, and then if the, you know, if the goal is specifically the viral uptake, those 300 milligrams, um, I would, like I said, I would split them into several doses throughout the day. And vitamin B1 tends to work really well with B2 and B3, and they, they sort of uh, reinforce each, each other's function. And also vitamin B2 turns into a semi, into a molecule that has functionality similar to a quinone. Um, and vitamin B2 is known to be able to increase the generation of reactive oxygen species similar to what methylene blue would do when exposed to light. And that's one of the reasons why Dr. Pete is telling people like, you shouldn't be taking more than 20 milligrams of vitamin B2 because if you do and then you get exposed to bright sunlight, you're getting the same effects as photodynamic therapy. That is the therapy that a number of studies demonstrated that methylene blue combined with light can kill the coronavirus. So by taking vitamin B2 combined with that B1, you will not only be in, in, uh, increasing the effects of B1, but you may also be getting a direct virucidal effect because of those ROS producing effects of vitamin B2. So, um, and then, the, you know, that will be my, my, and then vitamin B3, it helps because it's a cofactor for energy. And I think there are some studies showing that NAD, the cofactor synthesized for vitamin B3, when it's like basically when the levels are lower, the cells, because they're energetically depleted, they're most susceptible to viral infection. So vitamin B, taking vitamin B3 would increase NAD levels and also help synergize with B1 and B2. Sweet. Only uh, yes or no. Have you ever taken DMT before? No. I have not. Uh, thank it's, you for that, Oren. It's the hallucinogen. I'm assuming it's the, mean the methyltryptamine. No, yeah. I haven't taken it. Um, Ricky rocks. Uh, I can't. I don't, I don't want to answer your question on air just because I, th I think it could be like grounds for termination. <laughs> um, uh, so, I, but I don't have a source for that, anyways. Um, uh, okay, I think one of the last ones. Uh, Matthew Riley says certain vaccines cause DNA RNA damage that cause mutating in offspring. Can damage to the gonads can uh, be reversed before having children? I think it can be greatly mitigated to the point of not getting passed on to the to the offspring by taking progesterone and or pregnenolone. Um, when pregnenolone, when the studies with pregnenolone were first being done in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, Hans Selye and other researchers that worked with pregnenolone thought that pregnenolone has no other effect in the in the body as a, as the steroid itself, other than being a precursor to all the other steroids. But pregnenolone by itself has no other effect except protecting the gonads from the effects of excess estrogen and all the other toxins that are circulating in the gonads and can cause DNA slash RNA damage or direct physical toxic damage to the gonads as well. So I think um, if there is a concern about damage to the gonads, you know, maybe, a, you know, like a regimen of, you know, a few hundred milligrams of pregnenolone, which is what they used back in the day uh, for a few weeks would help before trying for, to have a child. Rami threw us another uh, five can make Canadian dollars. Thanks again, uh, Georgie and Danny. Thank you. And we'll just kind of leave it there, <laughs> I think. And so again, uh, I apologize to the people that thought they were going to get their question answered on the Ray stream. Uh, my fault. I should have been even more vocal about that not happening. 
Um, I tried, you know, uh, Georgie, thank you so much for hanging out with me. Let's, um, talk about your Twitter again. Follow, follow hey, Georgie. Let's answer more questions because people are angry and all day. They already know my Twitter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just want, well, I was going to like wrap things up. <laughs> so that's how I was let's doing just that. Just do a few more. Okay, okay. I can sort of sense and, the anger is building uh, up. Okay. Well, I, I can sense it too. So, um, okay. Well, I think that was all the super chats for this. Okay. There's a lot. We're on, we're on page and I've been skipping some, like three um, yeah, I mean, I think because those were mostly people thought they're going to be Ray would answer those, so I yeah. think that's why we got so many. Okay, um, okay, we go to page four. We talked about tinnitus. Talked that. Uh, this one's from Veronica Ayala. She says, "I have severe under eye darkness that I've struggled with for years. I look very rough under the eyes and puffiness in the morning. Anything I can do to lighten up my under eye area." The under eye darkness is, in my experience, two things: either food allergies, um, uh, or in, 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 you know, if it's not due to bad sleep, which can also cause it. In my experience, it's almost universally tied to some sort of a digestive problem. Um, so either a food allergy or like some kind of a food is not sitting well with you and it's causing a digestive uh, disturbance. Um, I've seen people, you know, with uh, elevated liver enzymes develop. Um, dark under eye circles so um, it may not be a bad idea to do some tests for liver enzymes and if those come back elevated you know aside from the typical um, you know avoidance of PUFA um, some aspirin may help caffeine is great for um, improving liver function and lowering liver enzymes vitamin K is also great um, aspirin I already mentioned pregnenolone is, is also very good uh, in protecting the liver um, and anything that would lower their estrogen because it's really estrogen that's burdening the liver um, and causing all of these issues aside from the polyunsaturated fat. So things like, um, you know, uh, vitamin B and B1 and B2 are crucial for estrogen excretion and uh, vitamin A and E are very good at both inhibiting estrogen synthesis and blocking its effects at the uh, receptor level. Thank you. Uh, Veronica Ayala has another question. She says, my son has a cyst near the ear and is starting to get psoriasis. Any feedback on the cause and how to avoid this? Uh, thank you deeply for your help. So it's the cyst getting psoriasis or like the psoriasis my son has, happening? With... My son has a cyst near the ear and is starting mm -hmm. to develop psoriasis. Cysts are almost universally driven, uh, driven by estrogen. Um, so if it's not too big, you can probably help shrink it or maybe even completely eliminate it by rubbing uh, vitamin E mixed with some kind of a safe oil, maybe like um, medium chain triglycerides or even olive oil would probably help. So a mixture of vitamin uh, E and oil in one-to-one -one, um, ratio and then just putting enough so that, you know, the cyst is covered and then doing this, this uh, massaging maybe like, you know, twice a day um, should be enough. I've, I've had clients, not children, but I've had clients who had similar issues um, and uh, one managed to basically have a very large cyst uh, right here, like close to their, you know, basically where the nose meets the the upper, the upper, uh, well, I guess not lip, but like where the, at the base of the nose. Um, and it was the size of the uh, nail of the thumb. And they were rubbing on an estroban, and it was they were noticing that it would shrink, but it wasn't disappearing. So then they they basically took estroban and added more vitamin E to it. And they kept rubbing it, and after about a month, it disappeared completely. 
And coincidentally, in those people that had cysts and tested their estrogen, mTOR, prolactin levels, they usually had a problem with at least one. Um, typically, prolactin was elevated. Uh, I, I don't know for a child uh, which one would be a better test, but if possible, test both estrogen and prolactin. And if you don't want to do the test, just do try the vitamin E remedy or the combination of the four fat solubles. They all have anti-estrogenic and anti-cyst effect. Uh, what was I just going to do? I didn't announce the winners for the Tokovit. So um, those winners are Dave. Uh, Harry McDonald. Uh, uh, Johannes Do- uh, Dolderlin. And uh, Kristen Lee. So you guys all have to email me at Danny uh, at DannyRoddy.com. And we'll get the Tokovit sent out to you guys. Uh, Jordy, how are you feeling? Want to do a few more? Yeah, let's okay. do a few more. Let's, let's push until 1130. Okay. Okay, you got it. Uh, okay, so this one um, talked about a mar- marijuana so many times on the show. I don't want to bring it up again. Uh, nutrition. It's so hard to like choose these questions. Um, Uh, huge Ray Pete fan says, I spend more, way more time than I want fidgeting and scratching my face. Vitamin A doesn't work and my diet is already 90% PD. Um, thank you very much for commenting. My experience with fidgeting is that is that it's usually driven by intestinal irritation. It's also at night, it's known as restless leg syndrome. Um, and even though... Uh, in the in the hospital or like the doctor's office is usually treated by using dopamine agonists. So basically it's a serotonin issue driven by intestinal irritation. Um, so I've known people who've had, uh, who treated there successfully with charcoal. Uh, I know people who treated there successfully with cyproheptadine. I know people who treated there successfully with Benadryl. I know people who treated there successfully with famotidine, which is also known as Pepsid. It's an anti-acid drug sold over the counter, but it has a very potent anti-serotonin effect as well. Um, and I also know people who experience relief after taking antibiotics, all of which implicate uh, intestinal irritation once again. So uh, um, basically, those will be the remedies that I would try in probably that order. I mean, like if charcoal works good for you, or like increasing other insoluble fibers like uh, carrot and bamboo shoots, um, that would probably be preferable. If not, then you can try some of the pharmacological remedies. Uh, Helena just says, "What do you uh, what do you do with whey from homemade cheese making?" I, I've actually never made cheese at home. Have you? Um, I have made. I mean, basically, it's the it's a very acidic protein. Um, it really depends. <laughs> Can it be used as food? Sure, but uh, in my experience, pure whey has a very um, very profound insulinogenic effect which is actually much stronger than even that of pure glucose. Mm. So if you're taking whey, um, it's, it's really, it's hard to avoid the, like the proverbial sugar crash, even though in this case it's not sugar. So you're getting insulin that's rising tremendously, and then your blood sugar drops to the point where it's causing a cortisol rebound, and then cortisol rises, that rises your blood sugar, but all you're already experiencing is a stress response. So it's really, 
I don't think pure whey is it should be consumed. I mean, you can probably mix it with other proteins, um, you know, in your in your regular food. Uh, I don't know what else, but like maybe eggs. But even eggs are also insulinogenic. So I don't know what to tell you. I personally wouldn't would not eat pure whey. I used to use it as a protein supplement. It was always giving me uh, brain fog and like cognitive disturbances, like uh, 30 minutes after drinking these bodybuilding milkshakes, and I always thought it's me, right? Something about me is not right. But then I talked to other people, they were getting the same response. And um, around 2015, I talked to Ray about it. And he said, sent me a study which showed that compared the different foods in terms of um, the insulin response that, would, that they would generate. And it was way up there. Like um, I know uh, people who basically like do kind of like a stew. They mix it with uh, some other leftovers from food or like or basically put bread in it so it can be soaked. And then they feed it to chickens. So if you're living somewhere out there in like in a rural area and, and you have animals to feed, um, I know people who emailed me and I told them this, they can use it on animals. And they're saying it has a really potent anabolic effect on the egg laying of, of hens. So they're starting to get like twice as many eggs as before when they're feeding the, 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 uh, the whey protein to the hens. And they usually soak bread with it. And then they give the bread to the chicken. The chicken eats it and they love it. Uh, but I personally, I wouldn't consume this food unless it's mixed with some other protein or some some other food to limit that insulinogenic response. Um, so yeah, that would be my response. And most of the rural areas that I've seen that actually do uh, make cheese, I don't think they consume the whey. I've only seen it being fed to animals, to be honest. So it seems like even the local population, the rural population that does do that, it already knows that whey by itself is... Uh, it's not good to be used as a, as a food only by itself. Sweet. Let's, this will be one of the last ones. Uh, Yanni says, nutrition uh, is good and active cyclist, but can't lose weight on, uh, I think this is a, is this a Remedex? A Nostrasol for six Nostril months Remedex, yeah. and test for two, uh, 2.5 ml daily cream prescribed. No success, no success what to do. Um, well, I would do some tests for thyroid function and cortisol. I mean, those are the things that would normally limit weight loss or prevent it from happening if estrogen is under control and if, if the basically the food, uh, if the dietary aspect is addressed as well. Um, something is keeping the fatty acid synthesis and the fat storage uh, get stored as fat instead of getting uh, metabolized and you know burned as energy. Okay, Georgie, uh, parting words. <laughs> Parting words. Oh, just a minute. Actually, everything... actually, let me pause you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Follow Georgie on Twitter, twitter.com slash hate it. Uh, go to idealabsdc.com. Uh, he has some boutique supplement products there. I do coaching via email and on Skype. And you can go to dannyrodney.com slash resources or to patreon.com slash dannyrodney and check that out. Um, and also you can follow me at, on Telegram, which I feel like is a more like kind of direct communication from me to you guys. And so, and also people are always uh, kind of mystified when we go live and things. So if you don't follow YouTube, this is probably an easier way to do it. Um, okay. With that, Georgie, uh, this, this Q and a episode was a miserable failure. <laughs> if, you know, a lot of people would tell you stay healthy, but, um, as we're starting to see right now, uh, you know, even this health crisis turns out to be a lot more manufactured than we thought before. Uh, of course there's a virus out there, but, uh, it looks like the biggest enemy is not the virus, but it's our response to it. 
and the information that we are that we're being fed about it from the public authorities. And if you pay close attention to the actual authorities and what they release in terms of information, you will see how their story changes over time. And eventually, even right now, as we speak, the official statement about the, the threat of this virus and the way it's evolving is actually pretty close to Dr. Pete's statements from about two weeks ago when everybody was freaking out. So uh, uh, just pay close, pay close attention to what the authorities are asking you to give up in return for some sort of a false sense of protection, considering that they're really not providing any of that. So, uh, so you know, just let, let's make sure this is not another 9-11 or at least not another excuse to give up liberties for, for a false promise of security. The only thing I'd add is like, when has the government or the governing bodies ever cared about anybody's health? <laughs> and the answer to that question is never. Like they poisoned your food, they poisoned the air, they poisoned the water. Like any kind of argument that comes from they're worried about some health crisis, in my opinion, falls completely flat. So maybe that well, makes let me... Let me rephrase this a little bit. Let's just put it this way. Profit will always come first, even if they care about your health. First, they'll make sure that the profit has been made and the, the, you know, the, the, the structures that are in it for the profit have been taken care of. And only then our health will become an, an, important, uh, uh, an issue of concern. Uh, more well put than I, than I did. Okay, guys, thank you so much. Sincerely appreciate it. Um, so I'll, I'll be back solo next week, hopefully, then Emma, then Georgie and Ray. Uh, guys, thank you so much. Please like this episode. That does help. And please share it because that's the only way anybody's ever going to see it. So, guys, thank you so much. Georgie Dinkov, idealabscc.com. Thank you so much. You're amazing. Thank you. Uh, okay, it. guys, have a great weekend. Talk to you guys soon and take care.